So if you're new with us, you've noticed that we, um, uh, you may have gone to a church or, you know, we used to do this. We sang a lot more before we got to the teaching. And we made a shift a couple months ago in doing this. And today is really meaningful for this purpose because we want you to have space at the end of this teaching. And we believe that this is the reason we worship is response to who God is. And so today, as we lean into today's teaching, I want you to just be anticipating responding to God in worship. And however that comes for you, I just want you to anticipate that today. And, and, and may that uh, move you to, to dig into today's teaching and to, um, and, and to receive something that God wants you to allow him to speak to you so you can respond a little later. Now, if you got your notes, go ahead and get them out. Uh, for those online, you can go ahead and get out the notes that are on your app because um, that's the place where you can get uh, connect and grow. Uh, all the resources are there. And so in this, um, as we get today, you know, I was just thinking about this. Here's the reality. Self-righteous people can be irritating, right? I mean, let that sink in and then you can laugh a little more with all the rest of us who chuckled. I mean, it, they, they can be irritating. Uh, Self-righteous is, is kind of like a... It's kind of like a spray repellent. Like, it's a people repellent. I about brought up a, a, a deodorant spray, but the problem is that I don't have any. Um, but you know that, you know, it's like, it's like this, this repellent and, that we, we spray on. It's kind of like this. Um, people don't want to be around self-righteous people. You don't like to be around self-righteous people. I mean, you, 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 we, we avoid those people. They work, we avoid them uh, online, we avoid them, we unfollow them on social media. Um, and it's kind of like this, you know, and, if, <laughs> and this is the thing about self-righteous people. Um, you know when you forget to put on deodorant? Speaking of deodorant. Who's the last person to realize they didn't put on deodorant? The, you, the one who didn't put on deodorant. And everybody's kind of like, I, I don't know if that's me or not. <laughs> That's like self-righteousness. You never realize it about you. You're the last person to realize that you're the one wearing this uh, ode day uh, self-righteous uh, deodorant. And now, now um, here's the mistake many people make. Self-righteous is often thought as being just the hyper-religious person. And Christians are labeled this a lot. And I'll be honest... For many cases, it's a right label in that, uh, and unfortunately well-deserved. But there are non-religious people, too, who are self-righteous, because self-righteousness has nothing to do with the faith you ascribe to or you believe in. Now, here's my uh, definition of self-righteous. Self-righteous um, does not make one self-aware. So, I, I didn't say that earlier. Self-righteousness does not equal self-aware. Um, you can be self-righteous and not be aware of it. So what is self-righteous? Well, here's my definition of self-righteous. Um, self-righteous means this, morally superior because of one's rightness. See, my rightness, then, because I'm right, makes me superior to you. It, whether it's my view that's right, my religion that's right, or my doctrine within all of our different religions that's right, my theology or is right, or it's my right behavior that's right. See, I'm right, therefore you are wrong. And if I'm right, I can look down on you because I'm right and you're wrong. That my view is right. 
And therefore, I'm more superior than you because of my view. And, and that view can be a political view, uh, that, that my view is right, which makes you, therefore, wrong. And my view then now is more superior than you. It could be, uh, that view could be a religious view that my, that, that my doctrine is right, therefore I'm right, which makes you wrong. And my view is more superior than you. It could be my view of which college basketball program is more superior. And obviously I'm right. And that makes you wrong. So therefore I'm more superior than you. But we can't say someone is wrong. We'll just say they're less right. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny, but it didn't come across that way. Um, see, this self-righteousness then leaks into our thinking that my way of life is right. And so therefore, that my way of life is right, then I'm better than others. And others are wrong. They're, that my behaviors are right. So I'm superior to those around me. That when others don't hold the same view that I hold. Or do not do the same things that I do. I look down on them. And see myself as better than they are. Now even though we don't say this. We don't go on social media. And we're not the ones. Because listen to this. We're not the ones who do that. <laughs> But in just in saying that, I become the one who does that. And therefore, I believe I'm morally superior because of my view, my belief, or my behavior. And these people, me people, and possibly you people, are self-righteous. And you don't have to be a Christian this way. You might not be a Christian here. And you might be pointing your finger at all those other people because your view is better but in your own view of better your own rightness there's a side effect that happens see self-righteous people scorn those who are not right you know what scorn means to treat someone as worthless when someone else doesn't see the same thing have the same view as you 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 treat them in a way as if they don't have the same view as you and and, and we may not maybe not treat them that way in physical but we treat them that way in our mind we may think of things like this i don't know how they could be that way i don't how i would never do anything like that i i how how could they believe that how could they vote that way how could anyone in their right mind support that can you believe what they did i would never in a million years i love that phrase and in a million years i'd never see behind these thoughts and behind those mental things is a deeper thought that those people are worth less than me because of my view because of my rightness and if I think if they are worth less, then they are worth less. They may not do this in person. You may not do this in person. I might not do this in person. But we do this mentally. Some go on in social media <clears throat> and do this. You know what social media has become full of? Self-rightness. And we do it often. Sometimes we'll do it with someone else, but we'll rarely do it with the person that we're comparing ourselves to. 
But more often than not, we all have a label or a group of people or a someones that we are scorning when we elevate ourselves. Now, one more thing about self-righteous people. Self-righteous people are confident in their own rightness. They're confident. And that's what makes them irritating. They're just th- this, this confidence. They're so right and they're so confident that they're so right, that this pride just becomes like a, a, a resistant barrier. Like it just creates this resistance. And they may even be right. But their pride and their rightness is so wrong. And Jesus has something to say to those of us, maybe to you about that and more on that in a moment my name is casey and i'm so grateful to share this time with you for those of you that are new in the room with us we are so grateful um to share this time with you especially on this spring forward sunday thank you so much for being here and, and we have a gift for you today we'd love to give you at the end of the service uh if you'll go to the welcome table miss alicia our host back there would love to give you a gift for being with us today and if you think about it fill out the connect card that's located in the seat back of the chair in front of you and you can just hand it to her um all for all of you online uh, for those of you specifically who are new with us we're so grateful that you're here along with everyone else online and if you are new with us online we'd love to give you a gift for being with us so if you will um Take the link or click on the link that they're uh, posting right now. Fill out the Connect card. We'd love to send you a gift for uh, sharing your time uh, with us and letting us be together with you. And now, for all of you that are online and everyone that's new in the room, we as Westside, we want to let you know how grateful we are to share this time with you. Westside, let's do that, will you? Yeah. So we're in this series looking at some parables that Jesus, the great storyteller, gives and he tells that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And I've said this every week that it is amazing that the main reason that you have the Gospel of Luke in your hand, in your palm, whether it's in a Bible form that's printed and bound or if it's in a a tablet or a device that has been captured in all the different translations that are there, the reason that you have the Gospel of Luke is at the core of it is because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. If it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus, Luke would have nothing to write about. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Luke would have not wanted to share the story of Jesus. Luke would not have wanted to write down the things that Jesus did or the things that Jesus taught. It's all because of the resurrection of Jesus. And when Jesus would teach, he would use parables or these short stories. And these short stories had a big idea, and that big idea is our series big idea, and here it is. Jesus told stories that are keys to the kingdom of God. He would share these these parables and these parables contain keys to unlock the understanding of the good news of the kingdom of god because that's what jesus would preach the good news and it was a good news about a kingdom where he was king and he reigned supremely and it was a kingdom made up of people that he would identify and he would say this is what the kingdom people are and so in this, um, we are going to look at another story today that uh, reveals another secret to the kingdom of God, an important secret to the kingdom of God, a secret that every one of us need to understand. It's a secret that is a core, a core belief that you and I need to have about the kingdom of God. So I want you to turn or scroll uh, with me to Luke chapter 18. We were in this uh, chapter actually a couple of weeks ago when we opened up this series. And so but we're going to go back to Luke 18 and we're going to go to the beginning of it in verse 9 uh, if you want to just uh, park there. Um, here Luke tells us the reason 
that Jesus tells a story. Sometimes Jesus tells parables and um, either Jesus comes out at the front or the author of the gospel tells you exactly what it meant because Jesus would tell these stories and the author doesn't want you to miss out on the reason for this story. And so here in the beginning of this, Luke doesn't want you to miss out on the reason for the story because this is such an important story. And so in verse 9, Luke lets us know who this story is for. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Now pause. See, again, it's not only religious people who Jesus is telling this parable to or he's confronting. While some could easily assume that because two of the characters, one of the two characters is a Pharisee, which represents the religious system, okay? So don't get me, don't get this wrong. He's not addressing this to the religious people. He's, or that, that are the, like the Pharisees or those that we compare in our day. He is addressing this to those who are confident in their own righteousness and therefore do what right, self-righteous people do. They look down on other people. They scorn other people. And in this, uh, Jesus is addressing them, and they, they do what self-righteous people do. And so, Jesus tells them this parable about the kingdom of God in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus would look at the crowd. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before god for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted here jesus tells a story that is foundational to the kingdom of god a story that you need to understand a story that we need to understand because when we understand this we know Who becomes a part of the kingdom of God and how we become a part of the kingdom of God? Jesus would say this is good news of the kingdom of God. And we've learned to ask a question in this. It's a question that we have uh, been asking over the last several weeks. And it's this question, what does Jesus' story reveal about God? What What does Jesus' story reveal about our humanity or humanity and about the king, God's kingdom or the kingdom of God. And, and, and in this, Jesus, we've stated every week, Jesus is the primary one who reveals God to us. What Jesus says, what Jesus does in and around this parable is always going to be revealing who God is and who Jesus is, who God, what, what God is like in this. And there are some parables where he is explicit to let you know what God is like. And he, there are characters that reveal God to us. And his all stories also reveal um, humanity in, in, in that. It gives a picture of how God sees humanity and what humanity truly is before the God of the universe. And also is an understanding of the kingdom of God, which is the good news 
of God. See, Jesus chooses in this story to use two extreme examples to create a comparison that this culture would have easily understood just in the naming of a Pharisee and a tax collector. In verse 10, Jesus would say both the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the temple to pray. So there's this journey to the temple. The temple was on the mount, and they both were in the temple area. Both were there. There's some other comparisons. They both stood praying, but there's some differences there. See, everyone in that day and age would have understood the disparity between the tax collector and the Pharisee. And you may not understand the disparity as that culture did. So let me help you with this. So in this, the Pharisees were culturally seen as morally superior because of their commitment to follow the law. This would be the Old Testament, what they called the Torah. We call it now the Old Testament. It was the Torah, the, the, the first five books, the teachings of, of, of the law and, and the way that they should live. They would operate according to these 613 teachings. And, 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 and then they would even have these oral rules that were passed down orally to like extra barriers of precaution to keep them from even encroaching on breaking one of those 613. And they would keep these religiously. And so you had this one extreme. Like if anyone was moral, moral, had moral superiority because of their behavior, it was definitely the Pharisee. And in this... I just want to remind you that we can't assume that Jesus was addressing the Pharisee. Again, Jesus is addressing those who are confident in their own righteousness and who look down on others. So let me just remind you of that. But in that day and age, the Jews would see the Pharisee as the morally superior person. They would, they would do this. Now, the next character is the tax collector. Other side of the spectrum, the furthest thing away from a Pharisee was a tax collector. See, the tax collectors were culturally viewed as morally inferior because of their blatant abuse of power for their own selfish gain. Tax collectors were the extreme opposite of the Pharisee. See, you had swindlers, you had prostitutes, and, and, and you had all of these like sinners, this category of sinners that were not Pharisees. And then you had at the bottom of the barrel, the scum of the barrel, the tax collector. This is what the culture viewed. You could think about the most hideous person that you would think of today's society. Like the drug dealer who wants to get the, the, the young teenage kid on this. And in that, they want to do this. Like this is worse than that person. And in this, this story is, is about, the, Jesus is opening up this idea about this. They were the ones who would cheat the common Jew. Cheat them out of this. And, 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 and just to make themselves rich, they would abandon the Mosaic covenant. They would abandon the Mosaic covenant to defraud their own people by siding with the Roman government. And this is the other end of the spectrum. And in this story, both the Pharisee and the tax collector place themselves in classes of their own. They're both standing in the temple, but they see themselves in different places with God. And so, speaking of the temple, the temple represents a place where God communes with humanity. That's the temple. It's this place where God communes with humanity and where sacrifices are offered to cover sins. It's a beautiful place. See, the temple was a sacred space. Both of them were there in this sacred space where God and humanity 
could exist together because without hum- and in this because there is no place that humanity could be with God's presence without God's holy all powerful nature consuming the sinfulness of our humanity see it was in the temple where everyone who came to the temple had to make a sacrifice because no one could be seen no one was seen as holy no one was righteous enough before god to even come into his presence and so therefore a sacrifice had to be made that 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 to 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 be in the place of our unrighteousness and it was because humanity was not righteous that that the idea is we're not right with God. And because we're not right with God, there has to be a substitution, the sacrifice. And so the sacrificial system was a product of God's mercy, which is a product of God's love because he wants to be with humanity. He wants humanity to be with him. And here we have these two extremes, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee piously separates himself from the unrighteous community by elevating his right living. We notice this in his prayer that Jesus says, the Pharisee gives God a nod at the beginning of the prayer, but never mentions God again. Let me, let me read it to you. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, other robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then I fast twice a week, which was more than what was required in the law. I give a tenth of all that I get, which they were only required to give a tenth of some of the things. It's like, it's like in our day and age, the, the person who comes and says, man, I don't just tithe for my income. I tithe for my talent. I tithe of my time. And I do all of this. And I fast even more than what is required. I pray three times a day. I read my Bible. In his own moral superiority, though, he's blinded. By the sense of his own sin. The Pharisee is not humbly dependent upon God. He is self-dependent on his self-righteousness. His self-rightness. The Pharisee represented the cultural belief that good behavior granted God's favor. And that kind of similar to what our culture elevates? I mean, if, if God judges, I mean, I hope God judges on right. I hope at the end of my life, it, my rights at least balance my wrongs because my, if God, I want God to judge my good behavior and then grant me favor. It would be the Pharisee who would not need a lot of sacrifices in this day and age because of their good behavior. Behavior. So granted, God, God granted them favor. And so there was a superior uh, understanding that they were even, God had more favor on those because of their right behavior. And then Jesus would bring in the tax collector. The tax collector represents the cultural belief that bad behavior grants God's disfavor. Because of all the things I've done, how could God accept me? I mean, how could I, how could I be even... Um, how can I even be here? And we see this in the tax collector. See, the tax collector humbly separates himself from the righteous community because he doesn't believe he is worthy of forgiveness. Tax collector stands at a distance, Jesus says, from all the other Jews, and he can't even look up to heaven. He has to keep his head down when he prays. Because it was common to stand and look up to heaven because that's where you're addressing God, but he couldn't even do it. 
And as the tax collector desires to be forgiven, he recognizes the punishment he deserves and he sees himself unworthy in that moment. He knows his sin is against God and that his sin is against his fellow Jews. And it's great. He knows his sin is great. Yet look how Jesus says the tax collector prays to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, we all say, yeah, obviously. (laughs) But Jesus would even say earlier, he beats his breast while saying this, and it was a sign of sorrow. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It was a sign of sorrow, which was a sign of repentance. See, sorrow is different than sorry. You know, you can say something to your spouse, and then all of a sudden see their reaction and go, oh, I should not have said that. And you quickly say, I'm sorry. But sorrow is different. See, sorrow bears the weight of the guilt. Sorrow, not, sorry just acknowledges the wrongdoing of one's actions and just like moves on like nothing happened. But sorrow is different. Sorrow sits in that moment, acknowledges the depth of loss that was created by either the wrongdoing, the wrong belief, or the wrong thing that was said, that that we recognize the separation that was caused by us. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And there's something here that also is a little difficult to interpret in the English the way it's represented in the original Greek. And, and I wasn't aware of this until I was studying this and read a couple of commentaries. And most all the commentaries agreed with this, that in studying this, the, the article uh, a sinner or the a is actually translated a lot of times in Greek and most of the time in the Greek uh, writings and most of the time, in, uh, many, most often uh, in the, the Greek New Testament, it's represented and translated as the sinner. Think about that. I mean, this is, I think our translators do an incredible job of translating them in the many translations they have. But the reason they have so many translations is because we're English, and our English language is very limited uh, because of the breadth of it. And, and in this, it, 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 it could have been said, have mercy on me, the sinner. <laughs> like, like, there are other sinners here, but I recognize that I am the sinner. I'm not just a sinner amongst all of them here. I am the sinner that is worse than me. Is this a little interesting? Like I told you this is like a foundational in, in Scripture. Could you see, and for those of you that know what Paul's writings are, when he recognizes that I am the worst, and who is he? He was one of the Pharisees. And he recognized, I was the worst. And it's like this Pharisee, this, this tax collector is here. Have mercy on me, the sinner. God, I'm not just like them. I am the, the, I am the sinner. I'm not here just like everyone else. I recognize that I need you more sometimes. So have mercy on me, the sinner. Now that phrase, have mercy, is really important. It's only used um, one time by Jesus here and another time by a New Testament writer. In, in, in all of our canon, it's only used the, these two times. And it means see, that mercy in Greek is elaskome. And that's that looks like hilaskome, but elaskome. And it means this to propitiate. 
And something, it's like this plea. In, in this case, it's a plea. May something be done so that mercy will be granted. May something be done. That's what propitiate means. And if you understand um, the Chris, Christian faith, we have to have a propitiation for our sins. Something has to be done so that mercy can be granted. May something be done, God, so that your anger against my sin, which because of his holiness, he, he can't be around sin. And I recognize it. And so, so that your anger against my sin will be removed. May something be done. Halaska may have mercy. Alaska may have mercy. This is what sacrifices were for, a propitiation for sin, a halaskame for sin. But they would have to come over and over and over again to present themselves in the temple and have a halaskame and plead, have mercy. And this man knows what he deserves and he knows that the only thing that can save him is not necessarily the sacrifice, but God's mercy that comes through the sacrifice. And then Jesus uses this parable to show you and I something about God. In verse 14, he says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified. This would have shocked the crowd. I mean, it doesn't shock you and I because we stand on the shoulders of thousands of years of teaching about the kingdom of God and the, the scriptures. But in that day and age, this was mind-blowing. See, self-righteous people were justified by God. Not unrighteous people. This would almost be like saying, God, how dare you? Have you ever had that how dare you feeling? Like I, I have. I mean, there, there are things that like, like have, I've, you know, something happens and you go, oh my God, you know, I, I'm doing my best here. And, and there are people over there that don't even believe in you. And look how well off they are. How dare you? Because what am I doing now? I'm elevating what? My self-rightness. God, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And that joker over there How could God let that man off the hook? That's what they would maybe be thinking. But why? Why, why, why? Why would he let him off the hook? See, God instantly justifies the plea of the one who humbles himself or herself before God. God instantly justifies the plea of the one. See, God justifies, makes you just as if your account with him is settled. That's what, a, this is an accounting term. This is a, a term that, that has so much accounting, like for a loan or a debt. It's just as if that debt was settled. He makes you as if your account was settled. And in this, God settles the accounts of those who humbly come to him. Now remember, this is not directed to the religious people. This is directed to whom? It's spoken to those who are confident in their own righteousness. 
See, God instantly justifies their plea of those who humbly come to him. But God does not justify those who self-righteously justify themselves. God does not settle that account. There's no propitiation for that person. There's nothing, no behavior, no right thing you can do to propitiate so God will halaskamai and have mercy. God does not settle the account of those who are confident in their own rightness or their own righteousness. Now, you can hide your self-righteousness from others, but you cannot hide your self-righteousness from God. That's why God's word is what Hebrews 4 would say is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut down to the dividing in your soul and your spirit. It can get down to your joints and marrows and thoughts and intents of our hearts. Maybe that's what God's revealing in you right now through the good news of Jesus. See, this is what Jesus wants us to know about how his kingdom operates And he shows us this in verse 14, that for all those who will exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All means all, not some. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those, and it's implied all of those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we humble, it's not just, it's implied humble themselves before God will be exalted. So here's the big idea I want you to leave, leave with today. God is merciful to the humble, and God humbles the proud. You want to know how God's kingdom operates? God is merciful. He is loving, and because of that, he halaskamize the humble. He does this. He is merciful to the humble and humbles the proud. This theme is all throughout Scripture. The New Testament authors would run run with this. The half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus until Jesus came back to life, by the way, he would write a letter to the church across Jerusalem, and he would say, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Peter, who stuck his foot in his mouth a whole lot, he would write to the, the, the persecuted church, I mean, the persecuted church. He would write this to them. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. His mighty hand. You can trust his mighty hand because he'll lift you up. Because his hand is mighty. And his hand is mighty to lift up the humble. And it's mighty to bring down the proud. I told you that word halaskamai appears in our canon two times. Well, the other time is in Hebrews 2, verse 17. The Hebrew writing is just finished writing about how Jesus is the one sacrifice for all time who makes all people holy. He says this, for this reason, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement. Halaskame. For the sins of of the people that he might alaska me now jesus used it passively in his parable with the tax collector was justified because someone did something so he his mercy was granted to him he had to he plead for mercy because i knew something had to be done for mercy to be applied And the Hebrew writer uses an active tense of that very word that is not used any other time but where Jesus is shared in this in the, the New Testament. 
And Jesus, God's son, the one who became fully human, who lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, in order that he might become the one who Alaska may you has mercy on you and ha- he, he has mercy he does for you so mercy can be applied to you that all who trust in him as savior and follow him as lord humbly coming before him not in our self-rightness but we lay that all down before him jesus does what was necessary so that mercy can be fully granted. Jesus died, so forgiveness can be applied. Jesus died, so propitiation for sins can be made, and Alaska may, mercy can be granted for all. See, Jesus died, so mercy can be granted to all who humbly come to him and repent of their sin. Not that we're just sorry for our sin and say, God, I acknowledge it. I'm sorry, and off I go. No, no, no. We understand the weight of our guilt and our sinfulness. That it doesn't matter how much right I do, I still bear the weight of being so against God in my life. It's only through Jesus' righteousness that I can put on his righteousness. I don't stand in my rightness any longer, but I stand in his See, God doesn't expect you to do the impossible. He doesn't expect you to be able to justify yourself. That's impossible. There's no way that you can live justified for God. There's, you can't do all the good in the world. You can live your whole life. And you can't do it. You just can't. That's why we can come to God, our Father, and say, Father, have mercy on me, these sinner." Alaska may. See, only Jesus and his righteousness can justify us. But only when we come in humility. Humility that knows who we are without Christ. Humility that knows that even in our own rightness, we are not right. Humility that knows that only Jesus Christ can make us right with God. That is the good news of the kingdom of your Father in heaven see the kingdom of god is this the kingdom people of god is made up of the kingdom people kingdom people who humbly come to god and stand confident in christ's righteousness and you know why you can trust that because of the resurrection of jesus so i want to ask you today are you standing Are you relying on your righteousness or on Christ's righteousness? Are you standing in your rightness or are you in Christ standing and relying on Christ's righteousness? See, your pride will self-promote and make you want to tell God, look at all I've done for you. Don't I deserve? Look at all I'm doing. I'm better than. Look at my view. Look at my behavior. But humility help us bear the weight of our sorrow and say that in my best effort to be righteous it is not good enough and I humbly ask for your mercy Alaska my I humbly ask and I thank you that I stand in Jesus Christ's righteousness thank you that he is the propitiation
for my sins. Thank you that his death grants me the favor and mercy I so desperately need. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to sit in that. And I want you to respond the way that the Holy Spirit is leading you to respond right now. And they're going to lead us in some singing.